0: Now, before I ask you any questions, everyone remembers our fancy uh, Q&A system. It's definitely going to work. No storm can stop us from getting questions from the audience. They're going to put the URL up on the screen on your mobile device. You can ask questions, and they will get beamed to me magically using the power of the internet. All right. It's pretty cool, huh? Pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, you know, I was being kind of facetious with the introduction about no asshole rule and all that stuff, but but maybe you could just give the audience a little bit of sense of kind of your background. How did you come to be uh, researching these kind of topics and and get uh, into well, management theory? Well, that's
1: What's that um, line, life happens while you make other plans? We
0: learned a lot about that today.
1: <laughs> so uh, I, I was a psychology major for 10 years, and then I thought I was going to be a... Uh, business school professor, and the reason I thought I was going to be a business school professor was 10 business schools interviewed me, (laughs) but my then girlfriend, now wife, got a job at a San Francisco law firm and said, gee, I hope that you can get a job in the Bay Area. This was not I will follow you anywhere, (laughs) and um, this is true. I applied to almost every school in the Bay. I applied to almost every community college. I applied to San Francisco State. They all rejected me. And then this job from Stanford came up at the last minute. I applied, and three weeks later, I was an engineering professor with no training in engineering. 31 years, they still haven't fired me. I didn't understand <laughs> it. But, uh, and, and, and what I've done since then, I suppose, is I've done, I started doing the, tr- the traditional academic thing of doing research on, mm-hmm organizational decline and death, leadership, various topics, and then...
0: You know, as one does.
1: As one does. Well, (laughs) otherwise, you get fired at Stanford, by the way, to be clear. It is Publisher Paris. And then after I became a full professor and was basically unfireable, I started uh, selling my soul to industry and doing more applied stuff. (laughs) That's the short story.
0: Got it. Um, And we were talking ahead of time about, you know, what we want to talk about this audience, and you helpfully provided this suggestion, which is, um, you know, why should a bunch of entrepreneurs listen to some ivory tower academic, you know, who spent 30 years, doesn't know anything about entrepreneurship? I thought that was a good question. Maybe yeah, ask i ask that, yeah. I,
1: I kind of wonder that myself. Yeah. <laughs> and, and those of you who have said that in my Amazon reviews, you do have a point.
0: Um, <laughs> do not read your Amazon review. That's a bad No, review. no, the yeah, one-star reviews. Yeah. Anyways,
1: so, uh, but, but I mean, to, to take that somewhat seriously, Yeah. Um, I I think the thing that somebody like me brings or my colleague Huggy Rao brings is that we we actually do read and conduct peer-reviewed research, (laughs) so we have a sense of what works and what doesn't, But, but to tell tales on myself when I was a young professor and to attack some of my colleagues, if you have done a bunch of studies in a controlled environment and shown that things happen but have no idea how the real world works, you are doing a disservice to yourself and everybody else by thinking that uh, that little world you imagine, for example, where um, incentives explain 100% of human behavior. Right. There are some people, some economists who've won Nobel Prizes who believe that, by the way, um, that you are really are doing a disservice to yourself if you are not involved in the real world. So for. The last few books I've written in particular, we try to do two things. One is to yeah. go through peer-reviewed literature, and the other one is, and this is a good thing about knowing people like you and other people who have a real work experience, is we keep trying to show what we've done to people who actually are in the real world and say, does this make any sense? Yeah,
0: does it match your experience? Uh,
1: uh, can you understand this? And gee, maybe could you figure out how to use it? So. That's one reason um, it took us so long to write Scaling Up Excellence, is we kept showing things to our, our various friends at different companies, and they kept saying, this doesn't make any sense because you show us something else. So it was, I guess that's, uh, what is it, user-centered design, but it's kind of Very efficient.
0: good. So, <laughs> yeah, but it took like seven years, right? Yeah, well, kind
1: of two or three years of writing. Yeah. <laughs> and then plus there was all the wine drinking. Huggy and I drank a lot of wine together. <laughs> That was yeah. like a year.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we joke about it, but I actually really appreciate that approach, and I feel like it's a rare combination. I wish more business books and more business authors had that combination of you know, some actual theory that has some stuff that hasn't been tested, and, but then that real-world focus, because so much of it is just like, hey, I, you know, I did this thing, and it worked out for me, so...
1: But, but it is—it is sort of—I don't know whether you have this experience, but it is sort of horrifying when you write something down, because you know really we talk to people and do the best we can, and then we write it down, and then you go into an organization and they're actually doing it. You're telling me. So I—I so I won't use the name of the organization. I was at an organization on Tuesday, and they took two major ideas from our book. It—there's this word KPI, key performance indicators. Yeah. So they're met, There's a hundred people in this. Company whose metrics are attached to our ideas. And, you know, we did the best we could, but what <laughs> if we're wrong?
0: We could be wrong. <laughs> and you're not supposed to ever admit the possibility. Really? As a professional expert, yeah. I don't know if you know that. Oh. I'm just kidding. No, I. I mean, there's a reason uh, well, we want to have I, this I, conversation. When with.
1: I tell, so this is this is wisdom. So if you look at research on wisdom, it, you, what you're supposed to do is have the confidence to believe what you're doing and talking about is right. Yeah. The humility to believe it actually might be wrong and, and walking that line is, is difficult. The CEOs, by the way, and other people, the entrepreneurs who start firms, you probably have to pretend you're writer than you actually are. Definitely. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Yeah. But as an academic, we can sort of tell tales on ourselves more because we have tenure and the money's <laughs> going to keep coming in if less than what you hope to get.
0: Yeah, not a lot of entrepreneurs <laughs> with tenure, unfortunately. No. <laughs> but maybe that's for the best. I don't know. I was actually, Mark yeah.
1: who just spoke. I was talking to him. He was, he was talking about how maybe Adobe we could give him tenure so he couldn't get fired because he's trying all that crazy stuff
0: man if, if only our yeah corporate innovators could have that that actually would be really great oh, they'd uh, probably
1: be less do less good work actually because the fear is really great <laughs> <laughs>
0: Is, is. That, is that your professional opinion? No, no, actually,
1: that, yeah, it, know, There's this thing called the Yerkes-Dodson Law, which is uh, sort of the amount of fear or tension or whatever, or anxiety. you got to at least be moderately anxious and believe that there's some chance that if you fail, something happens.
0: Yeah, so. mo- you have that moderate sweet spot yeah, right in the middle. Yeah. I believe that. Okay, I want to get into, into the most recent book, which I'm a big fan of. But um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is that the way people are teaching management and entrepreneurship at Stanford you know, and other universities is changing, and I just, you're right in the middle of that, and I thought, kind of give us a sense, there's a huge belief out there in the community, I'm sure you were aware, that these things can't be taught, or that the way right. that they're taught doesn't make sense, and I like, the fact that it's changing, I actually take, you know, it's well, well, a well so time.
1: So in general, and, and, and you could see sort of the spirit in Mark's presentation even a bit. The way that um, education is changing, and it's not changing suddenly, but um, in some places a lot, and in other places a little is, we're, try- we're starting to get students out there actually doing stuff rather than just talking about it. because what? I mean let's face it, the way that academia usually works is you talk and you talk and you talk, and you talk and you talk and you talk, and, you talk and, then, you talk and then you say, "Well, you should go out and do something." <laughs> but um, especially uh, the, at least the part where I've seen it up most closely, there's something called the Stanford D School or Platner Institute of Design. Where we we do use principles that are not really when I see what what's in the lean startup stuff it's the idea of the minimum viable product, yep. uh, prototyping moving forward, and so um, do to think is starting to invade everything. So to just give you two themes of this conversation of this conference are innovation and entrepreneurship certainly. So one class which I don't teach but uh, Steve Blank sort of teaches like one like this but but. Um, but they're called Launchpad, and what we do with cl- this class in particular, it's taught by an early-stage venture capitalist named Michael Deering, who's funded, besides the Stanford stuff, 80 companies you know, by, in, since 2006, and another guy named Perry Claibon, who's an entrepreneur who invented the modern snowshoe. And to get in this class, you have to start a company. And And if you don't have a product by week five or six, they throw you out. And so since 2000, I think I'm getting this right, five years, so since 2009, 50 companies have been started in this, cla- in this class, 25 or 26 are still alive. Our success story we talk about is Pulse, which was sold to LinkedIn for 90 million bucks. The two guys who started that waited in line the day that the new, um, the new iPad came out. Literally, in front of the Apple store, I think it was April 6, 2010, they waited in line they, they uh, wrote a program called Pulse, and they had 200000 talk about a minimum viable product. They had $200,000 or so in sales, and the rest is sort of history, but that's an extreme case of it. And the other thing about the grading in that class that I really like, the way that Perry and Michael grade it, is they give the highest grades to the biggest failures and the biggest successes, because they want <laughs> you to try to swing it out of the park. And if you chicken out and try to go down the middle, they hassle you to, to increase your risk. <laughs>
0: Wouldn't it be great if corporate America would do that more well, often? Yeah,
1: yeah, and, that, and that's what I like about, about Mark, who I saw his talking at lunch. Yeah. And he's, he's pushing people to increase their failure rate, which is uh, that's a pretty rare thing
0: when you've got KPIs. Yeah, but, and yet KPIs is something that you recommend that people adopt. But, 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 but Mark's KPI is, is more failure. Right, so how do you get... So, so, you know, one of the themes that we have talked about a lot the last few days, okay, you have, <laughs> you know companies, they can do these incubators. They can <laughs> incubate a new thing, or they can, hey, we're going to try a different KPI here. But, like, what's your experience? What do you think is the way that we get the whole organization to say, oh, yeah, failure, that could, be in a, you know, that could be an acceptable KPI. There's, like, a right level of risk to take instead of having everything overweighted all the way to the super conservative. Uh,
1: well, I, I kind of have two answers to that one. The, the first one is that, um, gee... <laughs> maybe the way to think about it, and this is something stolen directly from folks at IDEO, is to try to figure out where in your organization you actually want to fail a lot. Uh Because, I mean, let's face it, if any of us needed surgery this afternoon, we would not want to go to the hospital that has the highest (laughs) failure rate in San Francisco. We just don't want to do that. But but there might be a part, a sort of lab, where where you'd want to have people um, fail more quickly. Uh, the other thing, which is, uh, in, I guess I'm telling too many IDEO stories. I've hung out uh, there a lot, and yeah. we're actually both IDEO yeah. fellows. I'm not sure what that means.
0: Whatever it means, we are both. We are both it. IDEO
1: yeah. fellows. We're fellow fellows. But, um, so, um, um, t- Tim Brown, was the CEO of IDEO, one of the ways he screens clients is when they start asking about metrics and success things too early on in the conversation, he says, You don't get it. The, the front end of innovation is so messy that if you focus on counting things rather than just muddling forward the best you can, uh, you're gonna be in trouble. So, so, <laughs> so, so on one hand, you could have metrics like failure rate, but on the, on the other hand, there's a point where if you're focusing on counting it rather than doing it, I think you start getting in trouble. Although eventually when you institutionalize it, maybe you could have a metric that actually works.
0: Okay, we have to take a quick timeout. We're having a microphone static problem. Oh. Which compared to having a giant rainstorm black out the whole block, it's not really that big a deal. Um, but they're asking me to ask you if you'll unbutton the first button of your shirt. Okay. Boy, <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> well, you guys are desperate. That. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so that wasn't what I was expecting to have happen, but we pivoted. But, but the, the, guy, the, the guy backstage, backstage yeah. I
1: said, I'm, I'm always creating problems, and at least he didn't come out and unbutton it for me. Okay, so yes, now, okay. We, now we've done uh, that. So now it's
0: as much as that's solving got. Our, our microphone problem. Okay, apparently we are in good shape. Okay, okay, so sorry about that. Let's talk about the book, now that we're changing topics. Okay. Um, so Scaling Up Excellence, you should all read it, by the way, it's a, 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 I'm a big fan of the book. Um, you, you, know, you mentioned research took a long time, you've obviously built on research that you've done before for previous books, but like, how did you get into that topic, why did you find it interesting, and, and what kind of culminated in writing the book?
1: Well, um, a couple of things happened. Um, and maybe the, the, the main one was, and this is in about 2006 or 2007, my co-author, Huggy or Haya Griva Rao and I, we started um, a, an executive program that we were supposed to um, help companies make, more innovate, make them more innovative. Uh-huh. So, and, and it actually seemed to be going pretty well until people would ask us this question, which was, uh, so we got this uh, little part of our organization. And I remember getting asked this by a guy from, uh, what is it, Armor, they make spam, like literally spam. (laughs) Actual spam. Actual spam. And then also somebody from Google in the same day, which is we've got this little spot that's really good Uh at this. How do we spread it further? And we had just terrible answers. (laughs) And then we figured out that they would call this a scaling problem. And then, kind of like the word asshole, although it's not quite as powerful, when we started using the word scaling, people would get really excited, Mm -hmm. even though they didn't know what it was and we didn't know what it was. And, and, you know, Steve Jobs called, that called this product lust, by the way, when you want to buy something even though you don't know what it is. And so uh, between those two things, we started working on it. And then somewhere along the line, uh, probably, um, well, An- Ankit and Akshay, who started Pulse were part, but we started noticing that scaling was a problem in startups. So the startup folks would get all excited and, 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 and after about three years, what we figured out is the problem that we were trying to, I wouldn't use the word solve, anybody who tells you that they can solve all your scaling problems is lying to you and to themselves, It's right. part of a problem, was essentially situations where you've got something that's a little bit of something good in an organization and you wanna spread it further to others without screwing it up or screwing up the organization. And, uh, and, and also around the same time, I guess we were working with uh, a woman named Claudia Kachka at Procter & Gamble, whose, uh, whose job it was, was to spread innovation, sort of design thinking type stuff mm-hmm. throughout Procter & Gamble. And she grew from kind of one product and one or two folks to 300 folks and a bunch of products. So we saw this actually happening. And to go back to the d.school, Uh, My buddy, Perry Claibon, who also teaches that entrepreneurship class, he was one of the lead people in actually making that happen. So that all got it. And then then we started spending our years doing case studies, reading peer-reviewed literature, and trying to write something that made some sense. So
0: that's... Right, well, we appreciate that last one especially. We tried. And and for those who have been focused, you know, we've had a number of stories, both of startups that have gone through hyper-growth and companies that are trying to adopt lead startup methods. And this has been kind of a recurring theme of you know, the temptation to come in and say, well, I'm gonna transform the whole organization. Top-down, right. everyone does the training, you know, everyone has to do it. On, you know, on Friday, we were used to be like this, and on Monday, we're in the new system, uh, you know, not as effective as doing this kind of small thing. But kind of walk us through, why, like, first of all, why does it seem so logical that you just, like, if you, you're a top-down, command-and-control company, that's the whole point of having a corporation in the first place, why doesn't it work? Just like maybe say in the other, like why doesn't it work? Just be like everybody, we're doing the new thing.
1: Well, well, it it doesn't. Well, there's there's so many reasons it doesn't work. But I would I would start out with that senior executives, especially board members, are the worst. By the way, yeah, uh, they they tend to um, suffer from sort of three things. We call this the cluster fug with the G mentality because our. <laughs> our editor who is here, bless his heart, would let us use that word. Um, Anyway, so so, uh, senior executives um, often suffer from illusion, incompetence, and impatience, that they want everything to happen all at once. And if you look at the history of human change, everything from a social movement, to the growth of an organization, to, to spreading design thinking, or uh, lean startup up stuff oh, sort of sure. pick yeah. it. The, the, the fact is that it spreads best when you don't spread a thin coat of peanut butter over everyone. What you do is you start and you get a little pocket of excellence cooking, and then you spread it as, as fast as you possibly can without screwing it up. Well, without screwing it up too much, things almost always go wrong. <laughs> and, and in the world of startups, some of the more interesting ones that we were fairly close to, uh, Facebook would be an example. Um, It looks like Facebook, especially sort of pre-IPO, was scaling like crazy in terms of how fast they were adding users. But the degree to which they would hit the brakes, especially on maintaining their culture, Mm -hmm. was unbelievable. So many of us probably know that Facebook, when you're a new engineer or other technical person brought in, even though they've been under extreme pressure to grow, that they still spend six weeks essentially brainwashing you in the move fast and break things mindset before they um, figure out what job you're actually gonna um, move into. So this idea that it it actually takes a while, and if you wanna know how not to do it, and I'll probably get in trouble with this, uh, TSA, you all know TSA, the people who screen us? Yeah. A few years back, it's about 2008, I think, they spent so much money that what they did was they, they spent, uh, what was it, all 54,000 of the people who screen us, they trained them each for four hours in empathy so they'd be more <laughs> empathetic to our emotions. And then every single one, and, and they were very excited about how the impact this was going to have, and they sent them out there with no follow-up or support or incentives. Um, so to me, that's the classic way a lot not to do it. Now a kickoff conference or something can work, but you darn well better move in. Start doing something that's intense and actually works, otherwise things are going to go away very quickly.
0: Well, that's certainly been my experience too. But I want to like really go into that impatience thing because I I, mean, I think going slow to go fast—that's obviously one of the big lessons from your book—and and we mm-hmm. see that a lot. Um, people are impatient to like be doing things and be in activity, and so we often have the problem. You know, like, think about lean startup. People are impatient to do the big fancy launch and right, be the right. Super Bowl ad, and you're like, well, shouldn't we probably test to make sure that they're building the right product? Well, that would take too long. Like I said, so we have unlimited plenty of time and money to do the wrong thing big, but we don't have time to test to see if we're doing the right thing in the first place. So uh, we see that you know, internally in organizations as you're over talking about. Over. So, so like, what, a lot of people who are in the audience right now are gonna have this problem. They're gonna be talking to an executive or a VC or boss right. who wants to go faster, who wants to do the big bang thing. Like, what are techniques for uh, convincing them? You, know, you don't wanna just be like, oh, I heard this Stanford professor, he said.
1: Well, Well, sometimes the worst thing is when they notice you and want you to do it, and they want whether you're a lab with a product or, and, and they want to just spread it all over. Every, so, so the first thing is sometimes you got to hide. I, some you really do, and and one of the best techniques that I ever heard of, I actually heard this um, from a guy who was head at R and D at 3M for over a decade, and what he said he learned to do when he was dealing with the senior executives, he was head of R and D, is he said. I would show them bright, shiny things, things that sounded really cool, and they'd get all excited, want to throw funding at it, but the stuff that really mattered, I wouldn't tell them about. <laughs> and I would sort of keep it as a submarine product um, or project. And then when it really got going, then I would surface when it was in a, a condition where they could scale it up or mm-hmm. spread it or get out the product. So those are some of the things that happened. The other thing is there are you know, not to badmouth senior executives. <laughs> there are some senior executives who are smart enough to sort of protect things right. and to sort of leave them alone. But, um, you know, and I, and I think this year from the scaling book, I've spent too much time talking to CEOs. Yeah. And, and, and the degree to which um, organizations function as sort of these uh, organisms that protect not necessarily competent people at the top from their own incompetence, is unbelievable, because sometimes there's just these natural processes that stop it from happening. And, 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 and a lot of it is just you sort of assessing the political environment, which is that, uh, "Who do I show it to, him, to it, "Who do I show it to and when do I show it to them?" is a lot of understanding your context. But, but it is interesting, trying to talk people to, into slowing down. In, in some, uh, Jeff Pfeffer calls this spending money as a substitute for thinking, <laughs> and, 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 there are, and especially now where there's probably too much venture capital money around, we're seeing a lot oh, of that.
0: really? Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting overwhelmed with the questions that are coming, oh. so keep them coming, and I want to also more of a book, but, but people want clarification oh, on a no, number we, of things. Oh, no, we can talk yeah. about anything. No, this on. is good, this is good. Um, I like this one a lot. The question is, okay, you, they, they didn't say this, professor, but I think it's implicit in the question. Okay. You say that you first need to make sure you have something excellent before going to scale it. But excellence could be very subjective. How do you know that you are ready to scale something up? And my favorite part of the question, any easy rule on that?
1: Well, well so, so excellence or effectiveness has to be contextually defined. And so, I, I mean, just for example, if excellence for you might be cutting cost by losing a little bit of quality, this is what beer companies do all the time, by the way. I don't necessarily agree with it. InBev, which I gave a scaling talk to, some of their beers to me don't taste as good as they used to, but they're selling like crazy and they're real efficient. For them, that's excellent. So you've got to ask the questions, effectiveness at what, effectiveness for whom. There are some contexts where it's more clear than others. Let's take mortality rates or infection rates in hospitals. Those are, I think, pretty good metrics that yep. everybody would agree with. Uh, standardized test scores are a little bit more controversial, so um, so it does. So to me, it, it, you actually have to understand the context you're in to define what is excellence. And I think that we tried to cheat in our book and to, uh-huh. and to pick contexts where I think there was a lot of social agreement about what excellence is. But yes, when there's an outcome, um, there's always going to be disagreement about what is good versus what is bad, and, and the question of defining what's, in, what's, what's effectiveness. I mean, who knows? The, the one thing we do know if we pick stock price, which economists like the best, is we do know that whatever companies are on the Fortune 500 um, now, and, are, and therefore are all valued perfectly, if you believe in perfect information, of course. we do know that half of them will be gone, I don't know, seven or eight years. I mean, off the, at least off the Fortune 500.
0: Right, so... So, so it's that? hard to do. But,
1: but, so you actually have to have expertise in what you're doing and power to actually spread it.
0: That's the best I can do. Okay. So if somebody in the organization is claiming, look, we've got a huge success uh-huh. here in our team, you know, and we want, to, we want to scale this up, um, you, know, you don't want to just take their word for it. What, what, like, what, you can imagine you're in the role of that kind of senior leader. What are the questions you would ask to say, how do I know that this is, this is really ready? Versus, they're just you know proud of you know they tied their shoes. Well,
1: well, I I have to go back to contextualized business knowledge, but there are sometimes uh, the the way that there's a great line, Jimmy Buffett line. Some of you are old enough to remember Jimmy Buffett. (laughs) uh, Some things in life are a mystery to me, and other things are much too clear. (laughs) And I think it's good to start with the things that are much too clear. And um, in a good example that I'll I'll go to, sort of the I.T. sort of rollout um, sense. uh, Kaiser Permanente, this is about 8 or 10 years ago, after spending billions and about 10 years of doing bad sort of IT rollouts to have a patient information system um, that worked for everybody, including patients, right. the way that they did it was they finally got one in Hawaii that actually really, really worked, and, and, every, and all the numbers were it was more efficient, it was costing less money, the patients were happier, so they used multiple metrics, and then what they did was they got that one humming and they spread it to the next region, the next region, the next region. To me, that's, that's, a, that's a sign where it's much too clear. So at least start with the things that are much too clear. Got it. But, but there's a certain amount of religion associated with all effectiveness. Uh, design, I'm sorry, design thinking tends to be the religion I'm associated. Uh-huh, with. you yeah. got your own religion. <laughs> I mean, uh, it used to be the total quality management stuff. Yeah, yeah. And 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 all that stuff... To some extent, uh, goodness is defined locally. Um, and you know, I like your religion, but it does require a little bit of faith.
0: Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, there's not, there's not a month that goes by that I don't get a phone call from someone asking me to excommunicate somebody else from the Lean Startup movement. Oh, be, oh be, yeah. because they're not pure enough. Yeah, that, you know, this person wrote a blog post that's unacceptable, or did you know that someone so is teaching a new thing and it's not... You know, it's not so, so you need a, to make them stop. This is
1: the definition of success, by the yeah. way, when they think everybody's stealing and ruining your ideas. that's. that's I love a, it, I know, That's, that's a great. A, that's please, continue to
0: do that as much as possible. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an and effective Yeah, I'm like, I don't, it's not a religion, I don't have the power to excommunicate, so I don't know what it is that you want me to do precisely. Um, so one of my favorite lessons from the book, uh, it's something I totally agree with, but maybe you, you can explain. It's very simple, big teams suck. Oh. What, what, first, so, why do we keep making big teams? What? And why are they so bad?
1: Well, so... So, so for, obviously, as organizations grow, uh, there's this temptation, you're throwing in more and more people, and the temptation is to kind of keep everybody in the room because after all, when there was just four or five of you around the table, um, all of a sudden there's 15 or 20, and it worked great when there was four or five of us, and it's our company. Well, so so if you look at the research on, on team size, let's take two numbers, four, five, and 11. Um, essentially, um, if you look at performance, uh, the performance of a team that has 11 or 12 people has gone down exponentially from um, just massively, probably um, two-thirds compared to a five- or four-person team because what the research shows is that when that happens, people spend uh, more time coordinating and less time doing the work. And the other thing that happens is just think of going to dinner, and you're probably having dinners that will violate this rule tonight. Um, <laughs> if you're trying to keep track of conversations with 10 other people, you can't keep track of their moods and everything, so the interpersonal relationships degenerate. And there's a great example of this, to use a military analogy. At the beginning of World War II, the US Marines decided that they would make combat teams that were, had 12 people in them, and they sent them off to fight, and the mortality rate went way up, and mor- r- morale went way down. And if you look at most militaries throughout the world, the standard fire team is four or five people. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will ask, the, the next question people tend to ask is, well, what about span of control? <laughs> Doesn't that mean that if we have four or five person teams, we have a bazillion levels? That's, I guess I'm doing the uh, thing again. Yeah. Anyways, so there, there are a couple ways to deal with it. And my top one, and this is a, something we haven't talked about in the book, but one thing I really believe in, and Facebook does this really well, Google does this well, the U.S. Marines do this well, McKinsey does this well, is I believe in brainwashing. Because <laughs> the more that people have, I'm, and I'm not kidding, the more that pe- people in an organization have really strong agreement, the way we put it is what's sacred and what's taboo, mm-hmm. even though you might not like it, this gets us back, back to what is effectiveness. It helps people coordinate. And then, that's why McKinsey can have teams spread all over the world. And, and they, I don't know how they do it. I've been working with them for years. But uh, but they somehow or another, after being in the company for three months, are completely brainwashed in the yep. McKinsey way. It, and as I say, you might not like it, but it sure works for them. And um, I, I mean, an example, in a company, there are some things I don't like about, about including the fact that uh, they weren't selling my books for a while, which is Amazon. Outrageous. So so. I gave a scaling talk at Amazon, and I said to them, what is sacred and what is taboo here? There's about 160 people, and we all know they're in so many different businesses, it's ridiculous now. Yeah. Everything from hardware to the book business to grocery delivery and everything. Uh, immediately, what's sacred is the customer, and they really, really believe that and act that way. And what's taboo is wasting money. Uh, they're the only organization I've ever worked with that is actually cheaper than Walmart. And, <laughs> and they... they
0: it scares the hell out if, of Walmart. By ever, the way, have you
1: ever talked in their book series? Is that? Oh yeah. The Amazon. So here's the rules of their book series. The rule is, so they're the largest bookseller in the world. By the way, we, we all know that, right? So about 160 people attended uh, my talk. 20 were given away in a raffle, and our publisher had to pay for the 20. <laughs> they wouldn't <laughs> even pay for the 20 books
0: for their own employees. <laughs> for their own employees. <laughs> I remember that. And too. God
1: knows they wouldn't pay us, right? We had to pay all uh, the oh, expenses. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah, absolutely But we're not. both dumb enough to go up there. And but but but. If if you look at it, it's like a, I, I, you know, I I didn't like the fact that they wouldn't pay for the books, but I did like the fact that they actually knew who they were and who they weren't. So yeah. I know that from teens to brainwashing is a long way, but as your organization gets larger and more distributed, it turns out that, uh, that that does enable you to have some coordination and some control because it's they're all it's all in their brains.
0: Any brainwashing
1: tips? Uh, oh, the more people <laughs> suffer. And the more they think it's of their own volition, the better off it is. That's one of the great things about going through hell in a startup together with people or any project, is after that you're sort of bonded. And that, well, that's, that's how um, every major military in the world does it uh, you know, the, the sort of boot camp. Boot model. camp, yeah. So suffer, perceived choice. Oh, and do it in public so you can't uh, revoke it. So, right. so, that, so that's to go back to the design school where we actually do a lot of brainwashing. The way our classes work is everything's completely in public. There's kind of nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's another thing, is that there's nowhere to hide. Now, I personally hate being in organizations like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I'm telling people to do the kind of organization I would run from. Because you know, right now, I don't think my dean knows where I am, for example.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's 5 PM. Do you know where your professors are? It's, All right. <laughs> sure more, she we'll doesn't know. Bring in some more questions. Um, uh, keep them coming. Uh, and we've got the URL will come back on the screen, I'm sure. Um, let's see. Um, so, so there's a lot of questions that are coming in about, OK, let's say that we imagine that Lean Startup is excellent. Uh-huh. Uh, since you- I think in this room. So it's, it's a okay. room... It's, it's, it's useful. Yeah. Useful. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. That's actually that's a step up from excellent for me. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, so, okay, how would you um, either how have you seen or how would you kind of go about scaling up something like Lean Startup in an enterprise? Imagine, you know, a traditional company that doesn't operate this way, that doesn't have a background in, in design thinking it's a new idea. You know, a lot of people are trying, trying that challenge now, or even people who have a startup that's going through hypergrowth. Again, has that same challenge. How do I how do I not just be a great entrepreneur myself, but help the people who work for me become great right. entrepreneurs? What advice do you have? Well, so the,
1: the the first advice I have, and so I know more about uh, the challenges of scaling up um, design thinking than the lean startup stuff. Sure. But but and it's really a disease. So um, your goal should be to train people to actually do it, not to talk about it. So. There's this one unnamed uh, company, this is a very successful company, um, they've got a lot of the money, to people in this room, and they are so good at talking about design thinking, it's unbelievable, but we asked a really interesting question about a year ago, which was, can you show us one product or process that's actually been changed by design thinking? And even though, we, we couldn't find one in this giant multinational company. So, so your goal is to get people to actually do it, not to talk about it. So they had scaled up talking about design thinking beautifully.
0: Yeah. Oh, scaling up, talking about it is so much easier, <laughs> and the, and the vanity metrics are great because it's like how many people went to the training and how many people yeah, are attending yeah, yeah. the how many in went meetings. Training. Yeah.
1: So so by the way, this is if you look at the death of total, not the death, but kind of the demise of total quality management, you can see the firms where people would go through training, but didn't yeah. actually use it uh, to improve a process. So it's actually the same disease. Yeah. So there's that, and then the other thing we've already talked about that which is where you start, and and I would go to Claudia Kotchka here which is that what you wanna do is you want to go to um, somebody who is desperate. Because <laughs> that's Claudia, this is what Claudia did at Procter & Gamble, she actually did it with Mr. Clean, um, which, was, which used to be called liquids or something. And, and they were so desperate that they actually needed some help. So, so that's one to do. Or you go somewhere where there's so much power, people are forced to do it, but the problem with that is people don't have perceived choice. And, and I would go back to the notion that's really important, and Eric and I, we've said this so many ways, it's ridiculous, but you start and you do something really excellent, and then once you get the people humming, what you do is you have them help you spread it. So you don't just have the consultants flood in, what you do is you have the people who are doing it well, than, in fact, their peers. Yeah, but no, I don't no, know if that it no, really Lean Startup. Me
0: totally. I mean, in a number of the companies where we've done these transformations, um, you know, we'll have some initial teams. There'll be high skepticism. I don't know if anyone came and saw the, the diesel engine session we did yesterday at GE. It's an example of a, you know, a single project that nobody thought could use Lean Startup. It seemed totally ridiculous. We have success with it. You know, maybe go to a few more projects. And then as they start to get excited about it, um, you know, my philosophy has always been don't hire 100 coaches, 100 you know, people. Right. Like, train your own people internally to teach and train and spread the gospel, um, to stick with the religion metaphor throughout the company. Um, But then, so what we saw, was really interesting is a number of the people who are now leading that initiative were members of those initial teams. So they're speaking from experience. They actually lived through the transformation themselves, and so when they go to coach and teach and persuade, instead of saying, I heard from this guy, I read this book, or I went to this cool conference, I saw this great story, they can say, no, no. I personally witnessed this, and I know that it works, and it's a much more powerful, much more powerful story. One, one other personally. thing
1: I, I would add, which is, I don't know if this resonates with your experience, which is the worst thing is indifference. So yeah. the people who hate what you're doing and are screaming at you and telling you you're going to ruin the company are actually usually much better than the people who sit there and tune out. Because, yeah. because when you flip those people... They're the best. They're the best, and then they can say, I was where you were... And by the way, this is exactly the way religion works. Just to show, just to be clear, this is how cult. You're
0: gonna give me in real trouble here today. Cult,
1: no, no, no. It, we are all human beings. Cult socialization spread. It's it's all the same thing. Whether it's good or evil, we can we can debate. Or good or bad. But if you want to get people to do stuff, this idea about. Create, uh, cranking up the emotional arousal. is really, really important. It is not just a rational exercise to spread anything, whether it's good or bad. It's you have, mm-hmm. cr- and, and this is one thing. You know, we talk about uh, uh, jobs, and 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 the two companies he was most involved in, Pixar and Apple, two of the most different companies that I know. If you ever met Ed Catmill from Pixar, he's so mellow and kind and what warm and open and then you got kind of the apple thing but the, but the one thing that both those companies had was and still have is that the first order of business is collective pride we're doing great things together and there are places where people really don't talk about money very much they talk about we're going to do things we're proud of and we're going to do them together mm-hmm. and much better. And by the way, you might make more money through that process, but when you start doing that, it moves people away from thinking about their individual self-interest and to do something for the greater
0: good. All right. We're getting more questions in now and keep them coming. Um, this one is a slightly different topic, We're kind of going back to something we talked about at the beginning, which is any tips for how to persuade business schools to teach lean startup instead of, Oh, I like this, uh, business plan slash lemonade stand to startups?
1: Uh. Well, so first of all, I'm an engineering professor. I want to make that real clear. I'm not a business school professor. <laughs> You're not speaking on behalf of the Stanford but, Business but, School. But, 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 but one thing that is working at Stanford a bit, so the design school that, that we teach in, so I, let me go back to the principle. The principle is that what the faculty and the deans do, um, and I'm a faculty, is, is sometimes independently of good things that happen in places like Stanford because <laughs> there is an internal market and the students often know best Yep. And so one reason that I think that the D school works the way that it does is, so is none of our classes are required and, uh, and two thirds or three quarters of our faculty are not tenure track faculty. And um, so you end up in a situation where everybody is there by perceived choice. So, so that's one thing that helps. And, and, the, and then the other thing that helps is that when people actually start doing stuff rather than just talking about it, and we do this in innovation, we do this in product design, we do this in entrepreneurship, that the success stories are so much better than I wrote this business plan. Isn't it fabulous? And if you can show the story that... Um, uh, that I, I don't know that like one one of uh, our student groups came up with something called the Im- the the embrace, which is it's basically a cheap um, replacement for an incubator for uh, people in in poor countries. Oh yeah, uh, that's a lot better story than coming up with a business plan um, or the pulse story I told. So right. so I do at in, 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 in Stanford, and I don't want to just talk about how great Stanford is. There's certainly issues at Stanford, but there's a lot of other places where, despite the faculty um, and despite <laughs> the administration. They're moving in the direction of more hands-on, doing stuff, hopefully, that's evidence-based. University of Toronto, uh, the Rotman Business School, that's a school that has really had fantastic uh, transformation in this regard. So there are some great, great
0: schools. Yeah, I spent some time helping the Harvard Business School uh, work on their curriculum, and this probably won't make your dean very happy. But uh, one of the things that was really interesting is they, you know, you could get an MBA for, I don't know how many hundreds of years it's been now at Harvard Business School without actually running a business. And they're like, hey, how about if we make the students like create a business while they're here and have that experience. And not just the people who want to be crazy entrepreneurs, but also the people planning to go into private equity and investment banking and all these right. other fields because you know, who, who decides who buys the startups and who decides which startups get invested in and who makes the public policy that can help or destroy startups It tends to be graduates of these business schools. And if they've never been in a startup and have no idea what entrepreneurship is, we're on a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. I yeah, think that's you right. agree with
1: that? Yeah, I do agree with that. You know, one thing that was sort of interesting... Uh, Some of the and remember I I do teach some MBAs when I'm in the engineering school mostly but some of the best students I had both in the business school and the engineering school were the ones who came back to school after the 2001 uh, technology meltdown here because they actually had had a bunch of business experience yeah. So,
0: and some humility, probably.
1: And, and some humility and some knowledge. And, and so they were actually much better to teach. And that's why, as somebody who teaches sort of management and leadership stuff, I don't know what your experience is. My experience is that a, a group of brand new MBAs or undergraduates are um, difficult to teach it. A group of CEOs is actually really easy because they, they figured out it's important. But yeah, yeah. But, so. And I wouldn't blame business schools for everything. I, I, I think that, uh, that good things happen despite, what ha- despite the education we give them. Right. It's, it's really hard to screw up smart people, by the way. It really is.
0: Uh, OK, so this is one of my favorite questions that came in, which is, how do I know if I'm an asshole?
1: How do you know if you're an asshole? Yeah. Well, there's, there's the joke. There, there's an old joke, which is that every group has an asshole. So if you don't see one, if you look around, it's you. <laughs> That's an old joke, I don't know if it's true, um, but... Um,
0: that's not peer-reviewed. What? That, that joke no, That is not peer-reviewed. Reviewed, no. I, I think yeah. that
1: made it through the joke screening on one of those late-night TV shows. <laughs> um, but well, that's a certain kind of peer-review. But, um, but, but from, from our perspective, if you... First of all, you're gonna be the last to know, there's a whole bunch of evidence that, the, that overbearing people are especially unaware of how they're coming across, oh, yeah. there, there are other, there's more sort of subtle assholes, but there are, there, there are certain tests to figure out whether you leave people demeaned and de-energized. And in, in one of the first ones I always use is when you walk into the room, do people shut up? Do they look like they stop, ha- stop having fun? And do they parse their words so carefully that they're afraid that you're gonna, they're gonna screw <laughs> up? And, and to me, those are, those are some of the signs. Uh, the other way which to me is the best way to find out because we make this distinction or i guess i since i wrote this book myself (laughs) i can blame myself uh between a temporary and a certified asshole (laughs) we are if anybody in this room has never been an asshole once in their life please come talk to me immediately because i've never (laughs) met such a person but i think we're talking about the certified assholes yeah And, and Having somebody, like Scott Rudin, did you see, Scott Rudin just sort of came clean about him saying racist stuff about Obama that just happened about two hours ago. He's one of our star assholes. This this guy, (laughs) these are just facts from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, The Wall Street Journal claimed that he went through 250 assistants in five years, do the math, that's one a week. Um, and he disagreed. He said he only went through 150, but that didn't include the ones who lasted less than a month. He's kind of an amazing person. <laughs> so that's another metric, which is if your assistant is always leaving you, that might be that might be um, another another metric. But the best thing you can have, and, and I, I've got two. I've got my wife, and I've got my friend Steve Barley. We're at wrap up. Who to have people who can pull you aside and tell you the truth and say, Bob, you are acting like a jerk. Yeah. That's what we all need in life. Is we need that person who can tell us the truth. So awesome. we're we're at wrap up. There all right. Us. Yeah,
0: we're gonna have to leave it there. I, we could go for another hour, but Bob, well, yeah. thank you very much for coming and thank, sharing your wisdom with us. And I really appreciate you. Oh, it's
1: well. it's always a delight to talk right. with you. Yeah. Thanks right. a lot. Appreciate thank it. Thanks, thank thanks
0: everybody. Thanks you.